everyone, and welcome back to Urban Wilderness, a podcast about my journey as a city-born novice to learn as much as I can about wilderness survival techniques and bushcraft. I started 2021 by watching and reviewing a Netflix original called Daybreak as part of a series of episodes I'm calling High School Apocalypse. Part 1 reviewed episodes 1 to 3 and was packed with entertaining survival scenarios for me to dig into. Part 2 will cover episodes 4 to 7. The show begins with a commentary on bombs falling on downtown LA and the resulting blasts either killing or transforming all adults into undead. The only survivors in the post-apocalyptic Glendale area are children and teenagers. I'll begin with some amateur research I did on atomic blasts. There are four factors to wrap your heads around when it comes to this literal earth-shattering explosion. First, the blast. Its equivalent lives somewhere in the range between 700 and 5,000 tons of TNT. Second, the heat. The brilliant fireball is as hot as the interior of the sun. That's 100 million degrees Celsius. Third, the initial radiation. And fourth, the residual radiation. The human history of nuclear detonation had way more test sites than I thought. It depends on the country, of course, but like I said, it's way more than I thought. It's a certifiably shocking topic to research. So actual atomic explosions, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, it was so devastating. If you couldn't name those two cities, I recommend taking a moment to ask yourself why. Our protagonist, Josh Wheeler, has not specified the nature of the bombs due to his own ignorance and is yet to determine them for us as his audience. In episode 4 of Daybreak, we get acquainted with a different kind of survivor, a woman who was a teacher at the high school. She survived the blast and retained a large portion of her humanity in comparison to the other adults left behind. For the most part, she's not a ghoulie, but presents with brain damage, that is explained later. But spoilers are to be expected in a comprehensive summary. So she was thrown down a flight of stairs and sustained a major brain injury moments before the big downtown explosions six months prior to the pilot episode. The teacher, maliciously nicknamed Miss Crumble, only consumes insects and animal blood that we're made aware of. It's safe to hypothesize that she's retained a portion of her intelligence as well. But it's soon made clear that she's not the only adult. Josh sees Baron Triumph as a target to be tracked, and he claims to be up to the task because he hunted elk every summer back in Canada. Still vague about his origins, Josh does let it slip that his dad lives in Toronto. So while Josh does benefit from his hunting experience, he regards these memories with aversion. He treats flashbacks in the series as hollow ground on which to tread lightly. I wasn't surprised when the Baron got the drop on a fairly large group of people. This includes Josh, Wesley, and several members of a rival tribe. His weapon? An IED, improvised explosive device, in the form of a walking, talking teddy bear. This bear bomb results in the group of friends and enemies captured by the Baron. They find themselves held in a local factory. Let's discuss their post-apocalyptic imprisonment. Josh wakes up in a square cell with walls made out of chain-link fence. His cell is bound by a high-quality chain and padlock. Fortunately, he has a lockpick set. It's very convenient, but he's clever, and this is representative of his character. But I couldn't resist an eye roll, since it's the oldest plot device out there to initiate a jailbreak. Something that is original are the prison guards. Josh notices that they are imprisoned themselves by collars and sturdy locks accompanied by tethers that limit their range of movement. These tethers are steel cables strung up high in the rafters of the factory. 
The guards are friendly. When Josh drops his lockpick, a guard hurries to retrieve it. She's proficient enough to free Josh, but unfortunately, she's limited by her leash and her language. They only speak Chinese at this time. Spoiler, they speak English, but it's clever of them to let the Baron assume that they don't. This scenario raises two major questions for me. One, how easy is it to pick a lock? And two, is it possible to learn a language during an apocalypse? I feel like the answer to both of these questions is the same. In the apocalypse, when your resources and safety are constantly changing, you need to learn from someone who's already mastered it and is willing to teach you one-on-one -on -one at your own pace. Lockpicking. First of all, lockpicking gives you an absurd variety of search results on any platform. Also, lockpicking what? There are tons of different locks. And even if you have a lockpick set, you need to have had the time to practice with that type of lock. Without practice, you'd be unable to crack any lock under pressure. The same thing goes for a language. Knowing a native speaker is an absolute must. Practice and reevaluation of your speech makes actual use of the language useful, even in tense situations. That being said, the prison guards knowing English but pretending that they don't speak it grants these Chinese exchange students lots of information, and valuable information can be used as a currency. It's very resourceful. So with help from the others, Josh's jailbreak is a success. As the tribe grows, the false language barrier grows with it. It's an obstacle, albeit one they can overcome, because their purpose can now evolve beyond tribal instinct into fully realized friendship. I think it takes a surplus of resources, energy, and time for them to accomplish this. And to have time, they must have safety. So what is safety? To me, what comes to mind is controlled fire. Campfires, perimeter torches, and emergency signal fire stockpiles. <laughs> Fortunately for the cast of Daybreak, solar power proves to be a surprisingly accessible resource in California. In any matter, the solar power mall is ambushed by a tribe and they're forced to press onward. And it's attacked by a rival tribe. So far, the ghoulies haven't presented in swarms, aside from the blood balloon bombing at the condo, and mutated animals have had minimal screen time. There's a brief reprieve from danger when Josh is introduced to an extremely isolated tribe of gamers by his newest addition, English-speaking Chinese exchange student KJ. She also speaks Dothraki, Navi, and Elvish. This new tribe explains that most satellites remain actively in orbit and that they're in contact with other gamers around the world. But when pressed with perfectly reasonable questions about everything, they decline to share. I know, right? It's a lot to have all the answers about the end of the world kept from you. But at least secrets are revealed in some form. The remaining adults in Glendale, that is the Baron and the biology teacher, Crum nicknamed Crumble, they have um growths on their backs. The Barons are implied by his back bulging beneath a sweater, but Crumbles are shown. Luckily for me, the CGI is not great, and it doesn't hold up to be disturbing, at least not to my standards, which have evolved from a combination of education and animal disease, as well as tryptophobia. <sighs> it's an aversion to the sight of irregular patterns or clusters of small holes or bumps. It's not officially recognized as a mental disorder, which is fine, but in my experience of disease and parasites in animals, it's not an irrational fear. Sure, lotus flower pods make me uncomfortable, but that's exactly what Crumble's situation looks like, honestly. 
My point is that a pattern of infected indents in skin means a parasite, and dare I say a fungal infection? This disturbed feeling is rooted in the absolute fact that parasites and fungi are hard to kill. They're not fun. Treatment up for a parasite takes weeks, and fungi are arguably more difficult because of their DNA. I think a quick summary is necessary. We are diploid because we have chromosomes in pairs in each of our cells. Parasites are diploid and fungi have diploid stages in their life cycle. Bacteria and viruses are haploid because they have single sets of chromosomes. Their DNA relates directly to their dependence on their host as well as their response to treatment. Viruses are a big deal because they are so small. Yeah, I wanted to search why viruses are hard to kill, and I got slammed by COVID results, so I'm just going to skip that. So not only is Crumble sporting a very CGI yet very gross mobile diploid infection, she's also showing the five signs of inflammation. They are redness, heat, swelling, pain, and loss of function. All of these are prevalent. Now, arguably, the skin of your upper back cannot cease to function like an organ or a limb, but she falls over begging Angelica to help her. I'd call that loss of function. Now, it's just the dark comedy of this zombie apocalypse series coming full circle when Crumble revisits her roots. She imagines herself as a star of a sitcom about her life in which she is a partially controlled ghoulie back at the high school teaching biology. Her lesson plan focuses on neurogenesis, the study of the human brain in constant growth and healing, with emphasis on its 100 billion neurons and 480 kilometers of blood vessels. Her passion for details, she's a woman I can relate to. The tribe inhabiting the old high school admits that they were able to grow strawberries because of a fact they were taught in Crumble's biology class. They planted sunflowers, hyperaccumulators, to absorb a portion of the radiation and heavy metals from the soil. It's made clear that she's influenced this tribe, but she chooses to join a rival tribe. The Amazons. The tribe that ambushed Angelica outside the pharmacy? The show now delves deeper into their society, and it does not disappoint. Crumble convinces the Amazons that she's not a ghoulie because her brain is in a constant state of growth and healing. Their tribe's initiation gauntlet is brutal, but it's also very well thought out. There's always another layer to every test. At this point, I was very impressed by how heartfelt Daybreak was, but by the end of episode 7, the true nature as well as the global impact of the bombs was still a mystery. This is a lot of information to be held back, but it's all revealed in the last episodes. So stay tuned for part 3, which will be the semi-final episode of this series. I plan on doing a fourth episode about the last podcast left. Be sure to subscribe to Urban Wilderness on Google Podcasts or on Spotify so you're alerted as soon as new episodes are uploaded. You can follow me on Instagram at Urban Wilderness Podcast and on Twitter at Urban Wild Pod. Feel free to message me or comment on my posts, even if it's just to say hi. And thank you so much for listening. This has been Urban Wilderness reminding you to leave the road and take the trails.